Hello and welcome to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. In this second season of the show, host Jordan Guth is joined by a new guest each episode who knows something about hi-fi that Jordan doesn't. And who knows, while he's learning about all of this, you might learn something too. So with no further ado, here's Jordan and this week's guest. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. Today we are extremely fortunate to have the legendary mastering engineer Bernie Grunman with us. Uh, Bernie, thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm always uh, ready to talk about audio and about the ways that we can like manipulate it and so forth. And uh, so, yeah, just uh, whatever you want me to go into and uh, describe, I'll try my best. Oh, I love it. So a few weeks back, uh, I was speaking to a gentleman by the name of Joseph Taylor, who is one of the editors on the Soundstage network of, of audiophile websites. And your name kept on coming up a whole bunch uh, as Joseph was explaining the records that he liked and, and all kinds of different stuff. Um, so at the time, I didn't really know. I, I didn't have a full sense of what a mastering engineer actually does. So to kick things off, I, I guess the first question I'd love to ask you is, what does a mastering engineer do? Uh, what are the goals and the results of your work on an album or a song? Well, mastering is, uh, of course, the final stage. It's the last chance that you have to do any final adjustments and uh, manipulations of the sound or whatever to uh, try to get the best connection of the emotional effect of the music, which that is what music is anyway. It's a, an emotional, uh, say, story or a, a, a journey that's uh, a, a, we're all the same feelings, the same emotions. So we're, we're trying to uh, connect with people uh, these emotions that music has. You know, music is that portrayal, the emotional experience of being a human being. And we're all the same. We all have the same emotions. And that's why you can't, you, uh, my, like, I've gone through this whole stage of being a, uh, like uh, when I was a teenager, I was a pretty big snob, you know, because when you're a teenager, you really know everything, don't <laughs> yeah. you? I yeah, mean, of course. So, anyway, uh, so, you know, I was a bebop jazz person and I was into audio when I was there when it was really be just starting high fidelity before stereo even. I was there in the mid 50s. And uh, but uh you know, I was I was very taken with jazz, so that's all I was mainly interested in. However, now that I've been in the business and I had to learn this as I got deeper in as a mastering engineer, was I had to uh, realize I began to realize that it's really all the same thing. You yeah. know, uh, music is an expression, an emotional expression of a certain type of music. But it's still trying to access the listener with a certain message that's emotional. So music is that. It's basically that. That's why it's so immediate. So our goal as mastering engineers is to heighten that experience, try to do whatever we think is going to help it make a, a better connection with the listener so the listener can get the message, the emotional message that the artist is trying to portray. And it could be any kind of music. It can be polka music. It could be Hawaiian music. Who knows? You know, it can be anything. Some of it's very narrow, just like uh, uh, like people that do dance music for parties and stuff. You know, and I always point this out. I always say, you know, uh, the thing is, their goal is to make people want to get up and dance and carry on and party. 
Okay, yeah. that's that would be a, 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 a like a, a certain expertise. You don't want to pander to it. If you believe in it, you're probably going to make something that makes people want to jump up and, and party. Yeah. Uh, because I, I always use the example of like you don't have a party and, and put on classical music. You not know, a fun party. Not, no, <laughs> it, it's a whole different thing then. Because let's face it, I mean, it's much more involved. It takes you on a long, a classical, on yeah. a long emotional journey. Yeah. But, uh, and it takes you through all kinds of experiences. But with, with the other stuff, like even elevator music, you know, when I'm on an elevator, I want something that's relaxing, you know, that hopefully the elevator isn't going to fall or something, you know, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. You know, it's like it has a place. It all has a place. So I had to learn that. I had to realize that, hey, uh, it all means something. It's all one person's portrayal of certain emotions or certain kind of atmospheres for the listener. And if I can make it connect better with the listener as a product when it finally comes out, I'm the go-between. I'm the last person that can maybe help it even be more effective. And, and sometimes I can do that. Sometimes I can't. You know, I mean, sometimes it's done ex so extremely well by the mixer that there's very little that I need to do. But, yeah. uh, but, but the main thing that I'm pointing out here is that as a mastering engineer, because I don't know what's coming in the door, it can be any kind of music, but it's all done by some human being somewhere. So if I'm not prejudiced, I should be able to connect with it, regardless of what kind of music it is. And, no, and that way I know if I'm doing anything beneficial to it when I start manipulating the sound. So I need to have be in touch with it myself emotionally. So I have to be, I can't be prejudiced. Yeah. You know, like I said, when I was a teenager, hey, bebop was it. You know, <laughs> forget, about, you know forget about pop music and all this stuff. Well, I mean, even though I realized that it had certain values and all of that, I just didn't spend a lot of time with it. So now, of course, after all these years, I sp I've spent a lot of time with everything you can think of. That's why... I, I have a nice advantage in that I've experienced so many different kinds of music and so much that I've, I really have kind of a sensitivity to it. And that's, that's mainly what I think is needs to be developed. When I give seminars, I tell these uh, young guys that are starting out, I said, look, you've got to spend time with all these different kinds of music and you've got to be able to develop a, a sense of what a really good one of that kind of music sounds like. What, what, what a really effective one, one that really uh, makes you want to sit up and listen. And then when somebody else comes in with a similar kind of music, you kind of need to know where it can be, how far it can go, how much, it, how, how strong that connection can be made. And, and, and then you try to man manipulate it to be as effective as some of those most effective ones of that kind of music. Now, sometimes the performances aren't as good, various things like that, but at least you're, you have a goal. You have a, a, a like a, a place to go. Uh, you know how good it can be. So just like, and just like jazz too, you know, like some of the best players, you'd like to at least develop the soundstage, develop this uh, atmosphere and so forth, which is all part of getting people to get involved in the music, any kind of music. So you've got the mixer that's trying to do the same thing that I'm trying to do. You know, I'm just trying to enhance it even more. And then when it comes to albums and various things like that, I try to make it consistent. I, I try to make it so that when you sit down and listen to an album, 
that it flows from tune to tune. These are the things that we do as mastering engineers. We, we do all the finishing touches on all of these albums. Now, that, that's fascinating. Does that mean that when it comes to, let's say, an album, are you potentially like rearranging the orders of the songs to, to kind of have that more flow? Or is that already set by that point? No, the, the producer and artist uh, a lot typically of set not, that bit. They don't know yet. They're not, they're okay. not sure uh, what the sequence is. But a lot of times they've already spent a lot of time figuring out what's going to fit following, you know, each Got tune. And, uh but sometimes they'll change it and sometimes they'll send it in without any sequence. They haven't even decided. So I'll put it in a tentative sequence, but I, yeah. I really don't decide that usually. I mean, I have some, a few like general pointers and stuff like that, but you know, just to get people interested in your album, uh, you should start out with one of the best tunes. So, Fair that, enough. so people feel that, uh, you know, this is a, let's, let's keep going here. And then the second tune should be even better. Now they're really now they're really relaxed. Now it's like now you can do what you want with them. You can go to a ballad or something that's a little harder to get involved in. So all of this this is a typical pop idea. Yeah. But, but that's the way they work. And it and it it, it, it tends to work anyway cuz the thing about anybody that's interested in music is that you you want to get their attention that the, with all this resurgence of vinyl a lot of the kids were always having playlists and they had yep. stuff playing in the background and they were working on their computer and on their cell phone and doing all this kind of stuff. And they weren't really that involved. Now with vinyl, you have to stop. Yeah, You have to put the record on. You have to put the you know needle it's on. It's a ritual. Yeah. You have to put that, but here everything's been quiet now up to now. So when you, then you set the level, you're, you're there, you're paying attention. Yeah. Now you set the level uh, where you want to listen to it, and you might even pay attention and get more out of the music than you ever have before. So uh, it has created that kind of effect, and I hear people talking about it all the time. You know, hey, kids are getting together and they're listening to records together. I said, wow, what a concept. <laughs> I, I've seen that come and go and come back again. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's the way we used to live. <laughs> you know, so... so so between uh, and that this kind of brings up all kinds of different questions. Um, one, I can imagine that in the age of like you essentially now have the choice of mastering for digital productions and then for analog productions, I'm guessing. Right. Um, does that change the things that you do to the song when you know it's going to be played back uh, in an analog environment in a in a record? Well, I know what I would like to do. Now, I, 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 it, it depends on what the record company and what the producer and what they're what they're willing to pay for also. Got it. Because, you know, a lot of stuff that's destined for digital, like streaming and various things like that, is handled in a little different way. It, it's more um, commercialized in a funny way. In other words, it has to kind of like fit in a playlist, you don't want to be too low in level and things like that. You want to be have a pretty high average level uh, so that it, it, it kind of flows from like from one other person's tune to another person's and then yeah. yours. And then so it's, 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 it's like everything's like different artists and stuff in a row. So it's, it's kind of hard to know even what's going to happen. But the, most people are concerned about it yeah, being noticed. So, uh, so when they put on something next to other artists' recordings, they don't want it to sound inferior or what they think is inferior, which would be a lower level. 
Now, it would probably be better quality, lower level, but are you going to be able to get people to turn their volume up for that one and then turn it back down for somebody else? And so there's always been this thing about in the pop market, in the commercial end of it, is uh, loud. Everybody wants these loud recordings, which of course is, is, is going to make the sound inferior, the quality of the sound. There's no way you can get away from it because you have to use all kinds of electronic devices to make things have a high average level. So you're, you're, you're compressing it, you're uh, uh, manipulating it, in a, especially in the digital age. Because digital, one, one of the problems of digital is that uh, any, anything you put into that circuit that's digital, that's going to take that, if it's a digital signal, uh, which a lot of it is nowadays, if, yeah. if, you, if you start uh, using something to make it louder or whatever, or whatever works on level, on the, it, like EQ, compression, you're going to degrade the sound on everything. Interesting. The, the whole, everything on that recording is now going to have something that doesn't belong there. But it's going to be, it, it's, it's, a, it's a coloration of the sound. So think of it this way. You've got, it's like a photograph, like you've got reds and greens and blues. Yeah. But after you put it through all of this stuff, it's got a little yellow tint on everything. Yeah, you know they're they're still there, but they're not as detailed and separated and so forth. It's kind of a little smearier now. Well, if you really listen to some of these digital things, everything has this disease on it, and uh, so it's not pure and natural the way a a lot of these. Uh, like, I'm not even saying that it's a problem of digital. It's only a yeah. problem of digital. When you manipulate digital. When you go too far. No, when you go in in anything you do, anything you do to digital after it's recorded, it can be really good as a a multi-channel device or something like that with different channels and you've done all your recording. Now you're going to mix it. Now, that's where the problem is. Now, if you each one of those tracks on there, you can't change it without losing quality. If you change, if you want the vocal up a dB, boom, you're already going to hear a difference in quality. It's not going to sound as good because it's not the same ones and zeros anymore. Yeah. No. So, uh, so that that's one of the pro- that's why the best recordings still are the ones that they record. Maybe, I mean, because they pretty much have to nowadays use a multi-channel digital machine, but they mix it on an analog board because you can. They manipulate- go back. They go back through an analog board because you can manipulate the sound there without it changing. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. The best recordings are that way. Huh. So, uh, but it still goes back into digital after that. Of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, you go back into the uh, your main computer, your final computer, and now it's been manipulated, though, but, but it's usually uh, primarily uh, selective then. If you are going to have to degrade it somewhat, you can do it to just one channel. You might have to do that. So, I mean, there are very, there's some compromises here and there to get what you want because these things are on so many channels a lot of times that it's going to take a lot of uh, manipulation and moving around. They want, they have 10 vocal tracks. Now they want to like pick out and and splice together in in the computer all these different parts of the vocal to get the, what they think is the most effective vocal. I mean, there's all of this stuff that goes on now. Uh, that, that, uh, whereas a lot of these recordings that a lot of people like were just done direct to two-track or direct to mono. 
and yeah. everything was done live. <laughs> yeah. And then because there was very little electronics in there, and that's why they still still think some of that these old recordings are 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 more natural, and they are because it's all it hasn't been manipulated a lot because even analog. If you do a lot of generations and a lot of things like that, it's not going to sound as good. It just, they, none of them stand up to a lot, more and more electronics, especially things that are acoustic, jazz, classical, anything like that, which has a lot of overtones and real subtle resonances and things like that. That's what starts to get lost if you transfer to digital. So when you talk about, um, doing the final master and doing it on digital because it always has to go back to digital. Um, does the setting in which people are going to listen to it change how you master it? So what I mean by that is like, um, do you consider the fact that uh, like some people, when they listen to pop music, it's probably going to be in the car. So would that be mastered differently than something like classical music where you can assume somebody has like a, a nicer set of speakers and stuff like that? Um, or is it like, no, there's going to be one kind of digital master and then there's going to be one analog master? Well, we do that a lot. We have one that's made like to go in the streaming services because you know, these services, they're going to want it to be fairly high average level so that it's like yeah. everybody else is doing that so that they get noticed. So it's it's kind of something that you you kind of assume in some ways when it's a real straight ahead pop record. Yeah. Uh, 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 recording, you know that, uh, and sometimes we'll do two masters though. We'll do one with all this processing to make it really loud or a high average level and so forth. And then we'll do another one at higher resolution and for making discs. Oh, okay. So, so uh, a lot of times, a lot of these, uh, even pop artists, the disc many times sounds better than the streaming stuff because it's, it's, uh, it's, they rerun it. It's just like uh, uh, like sometimes they'll even uh, mix it to a, an analog tape machine and then mix it to a digital. So oh, interesting. We'll, then they'll give us the analog recording. If it's done on good equipment, then the, the vinyl comes out from an analog recording that wasn't even manipulated a lot in the digital domain. Interesting. So, uh, so these, these things do happen when they think that the audience – there is an audience out there that that likes vinyl. Yeah, like I said, you can get away with more with vinyl. You don't have to be so competitive in the level way. You know, if having things just loud. You can you can actually uh, go for a little more quality. Like we did the whole. Uh, one of my engineers did the whole U two catalog, and they used to really push it a lot and so forth. But it was all done from the original half inch thirty uh, masters. And uh, people were saying, God, we're hearing things here we never heard before. Because when we do vinyl, we don't feel we have to do all of that manipulation in order just to make it loud. We want to have, we're more interested in the quality of the original recording and then having a good balance and, and having the more, as far as I'm concerned, a more complete experience. Because that opens up the soundstage as well. And you, what you really are trying to do for a good recording, and the best engineers can achieve this, is you want to transport people that are listening to it into an environment that's like not where you are, but it's going to take you into a place where you're more intimate with that music. Yeah. So like people like Bruce Swedeen, who did Michael Jackson stuff, those mixes, 
it's got all kinds of presence on the main instruments and the vocal and stuff, but you can walk in there and walk around in behind them and stuff like that. I mean, I don't know how they do it. Mixers, the best mixers can do that. They create this soundstage where you can wander around behind, but you have all this presence at the same time. That's not easy. That's hard to do. And so, uh, I mean, all of these things are part of uh, any mastering engineer needs to know what a really great recording sounds like so that they have some kind of benchmark in their mind about where it could be or how good it could be. So that's what we're all trying to do. And I've I've thought about this many, many times. That's why I've given a lot of seminars and I'm trying to get people to just spend time. And it's an automatic thing. If you listen to one kind of music and all kinds of different people that are doing it and so forth, the best ones are gonna stick out. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, you put them out. You you put them on. You go, wow, that's really effective. Well, I mean, it just gets you. And so now this next guy that comes in, let me see if I can get that out of his. Yeah, if it, yeah. If it isn't there, well, that's part of it. You you have to train yourself to know. You need you need to know what what's really good of this kind of music. What what can be achieved? If you don't know the music then you have to start really opening up yourself emotionally as best you can to it and try to see what's going to actually affect you the most uh, in how you uh, adjust the sound stage and how you adjust the, the frequency response and the, the balances and so forth and what's important to this kind of music. Whereas in hip-hop, you want a really punchy kick drum and things like that. The rhythm thing is very important. I mean, there are various, various things like that. But, but you don't want to go too far because then it'll cover everything else up. So that's awesome. Uh, with that, I think it's a good time to take a quick little break. And then I have a couple questions on uh, mastering um, or remastering different stuff when we're back. Okay, very good. So now we're back. Um, a question that kind of struck me uh, with what we were talking about just before the break, um, talking about feeling that emotion of the music and trying to communicate that. When it comes to remastering, so uh, Soundstage founder Doug Schneider was in the record store a couple weeks ago uh, and found a copy of The Dark Side of the Moon and your name was on it. and. This is one of the most iconic records that I could think of. Everyone knows this record. Um, when it comes to remastering a record, uh, especially one that somebody already has quite a lot of emotional attachment to, um, what does that process look like? Is, is that a different approach than when you master something for the first time? Well, not necessarily. I, I'll get some things in sometimes that they're uh, pre-mastered, what they call it, but they're pre-mastered so well that you know it sometimes it's better to take not not do anything to it you want to capture because as soon as we start doing something to it 
we are introducing a little bit of a little less quality to it because we're running it through equipment or, yeah. or equals equalizers or whatever we're doing to manipulate the sound so if it's really extremely well done uh sometimes we we have different signal paths in our studio we build all of our own equipment basically or we hot rod everything also if it's made by somebody else we all we make everything better usually and That's so awesome. we have different ways of transferring a master that goes directly to the cutting system when we're making vinyl it doesn't doesn't go through anything it comes right out of the computer if it's a digital or right out of the tape machine it can and we can go directly to the cutting system without any electronics in between and we can capture everything that's there without uh, changing it except for i mean you are going down another generation just by making a vinyl uh. but 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 our our goal usually is is to maintain the quality of the recording whatever it is and if and if we if we really feel though that we're going to get more uh, uh, by sending it through some equalization or whatever and, and manipulating it a little bit than what we're losing. Because anytime you do things like this and adjust the sound, you do lose a little bit of quality. Now, like I said, we build all of our own equipment. So our equipment, it's, it's almost, even if we send it through our equalization system and all that stuff, we built it in such a way that only the frequencies we use are the ones that are in the circuit. To, oh, to manipulate. Oh, yeah. It's, it's very elaborate. Uh, so we're always trying. Our main goal here is quality, is that we don't want to degrade the quality any more than we have to. We, we want to. We, in other words, we want to gain more than we're going to lose because there's yeah. always a slight loss of quality. But sometimes that's OK, because what you're gaining is is greater than that, than, than the loss. So, and this is true uh, no matter where you are in this industry. And, and the goal, the main goal is, is that, is that we would like to be able to mass produce to the public what we're hearing before we send it to the factory and so forth. Yeah. And even the vinyl does not sound as good as the lacquer that we cut. The lacquer, if you compare the lacquer that we cut to the signal that we're sending it, with just a good playback system that's right on the cutting system that we calibrate with, if we A, B it, it's almost impossible to hear the difference. But when you get the vinyl out of the factory, after it's gone through all those stages of plating and so forth, now you can tell the difference. Uh, but uh, some plants are better than other plants. So this, that's, that's another whole other area that we don't want to get into. But, I mean, some are way better than others. Some of them almost sound like the lacquer. But uh, that that's and, and some and even those plants have bad days. <laughs> yeah. I, Joseph was telling me that as they press records, as they press vinyl, the longer a press is used, potentially you're getting a different, a slightly different quality of recording. So, well, you know, see, the fact is uh, uh, vinyl is a fairly hard material, really. And, and these these the stampers are all made out of nickel, which is a hard metal. But uh, they wear out, yeah. Because this is a mechanical operation, and vinyl, like I said, is 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 going to wear it out after a while, after about a thousand pressings or something like that. So, so the way they plate all this stuff and get it in the factory is they they make multiple stampers, uh, and and actually between one stamper and another one, they might sound a little different, you know. And who knows why? You know, I mean, the 
the plating bath or who knows what's causing it. I don't, I'm not in the uh, manufacturing. All I know is that what we get out of the factories and we can compare it to what we sent them and we will know whether they did a good job or not, or we have a pretty good idea of what it should be or how good it could be. But, uh, but then again, we're not necessarily the final word, you know, because a lot of people just want to get it out there. Yeah. So, uh, but but we 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 are concerned about quality, and we like to hear how it did come out of the factory to see how much was lost, because uh, and then you have to determine that was too much lost. Should we reject this? Should we do it all over again? So it's really a moving target, this kind of thing. So when you're looking at uh, making these recordings, uh, one of the other kind of big quality jumps that we've had over the last couple generations is we no longer listen to music on the radio quite as much. Um, now a lot of people have streaming services. They have the ability to kind of access almost all music ever recorded practically uh, yeah. from their phones. Does not mastering for the radio change kind of how you master? Uh, was it a different time when you were mastering for the radio? Well, it is, it's similar though with pop, pop music. It definitely is similar because everybody wants a high average level. They want to really uh, have it in a, in a way so that if you're not paying full attention to it, you still get most of what's there, uh, that it's at a, at a high average level. And so way back when we were doing uh, singles and various things, even in, in uh, vinyl, uh, everybody wanted fairly loud records. And if yep. the cartridges got better, They'd want it even louder, you know, <laughs> uh, they, they'd get it just before distortion and then they would say, that's it. Okay. But, uh, yeah, uh, I think, um, uh, even with streaming, uh, they, they do want a fairly high average level. However, things are changing a little in the streaming because, and, and I'm, I don't even know which streaming services and the, the differences between them, but some of them are actually adjusting the level that they send out, uh, to the average level. Oh, so in other words, in other words, if you've slammed it really hard and have everything at a similar level, you know, to, to really have it loud all the time, they'll take it down because it's a high average level. So they'll take it down. And, and the one that's got more dynamics is going to sound just as loud because it has a, the, the average level is lower. So they'll raise that. <laughs> Interesting. Well, some of that's happening now, so I can't really say where where it is at this time because I never listen to streaming. So uh, there's a lot of things that people don't understand about this, and um, uh, so and and the only thing that's going to tell you if you if, if 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 it's really good quality are your ears. Yeah. You know, I mean, I have a lot of people telling me how great this is and how great that is, and how is it? I says, look, don't tell me how great it is. Just let me listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah, no, think about this. It's hard. It's hard to uh, uh, explain this in some ways. But let me say it real simply: that the biggest thing that makes a difference in any audio system are the transducers. So, in any time you're changing mechanical to electrical, or electrical back to mechanical, like a cartridge, a microphone, the cutting head itself is mechanical. Okay, you've got all of these things that are going to affect the sound, and those are the things that affect it more than the amplifier. The amplifier, you can make a perfectly ruler flat signal pad, you know, uh, frequency response. You can't do that with a speaker or a microphone or anything. They're not perfect. Yeah, and, and no, no two speakers are alike. Even the same model, same brand. 
I found that out last week. Yeah. Left and right. Because they're mechanical. They have little uh, deviations. uh, Well, because of the way they're built. They have all kinds of little resonances and things that aren't going to stay the same for everyone that's made. So, so, uh, and even the, the measurements of amplifiers that where it's intermodulation distortion and harmonic distortion, it's only done on simple, in a simple way. They have no way of telling you what it's going to do on complex information. Yeah. That's why I tell my seminar, I says, hey, the thing to do is listen through, through a piece of equipment that you're interested in, listen to some distortion and see how accurate it, it, it is on the way, uh, on the output of it. Is it as good yeah. as what you sent it? I mean, how much have you lost? That's a real complex signal. Be yeah. hard, to, hard to pass through the amplifier. So if so, that's a, a better way of telling. But really, when it comes down, it's your ears that are going to tell you how good something is. So for you, um, obviously, you probably have studio monitors at work and, and you're really comfortable with that. When you're just listening to music for pure enjoyment, do you have a like a, a system set up at home, a listening room, or is it just more casual, like music is on throughout the the, the home, or, or what is your what is your personal relationship with music? Oh well, I, have, I was an audiophile from way back in the mid fifties. All my money went to that, <laughs> and and, uh, and you know I, I I was so into bebop that when I was nineteen, I had an after hours jazz club. Oh no way! Yeah, no, <laughs> that's no, awesome. I, I was raised in Phoenix. But uh, but I knew all the musicians in town and uh, I, I would go around. I had a little recording set up, too. But, uh, yeah, that's uh, kind of my background was uh, when I when I discovered audio, high quality audio, because it was a new thing in the early 50s, because I walked into this store, the first high fidelity store I'd ever seen, because I had a real cheap record player listening to my dad's 78s. But uh I, I went in there and the, the Mac 30 had just come out, you know, that little nice, real great looking amplifier. And, uh, and, and it was all hobby. A lot of it was hobby. There were unfinished cabinets and all these speakers sitting on, on shelves and stuff. And the guy said to me, hey, let me play you something. And I said, okay. When he put that record on, it changed my life. Huh. I mean, I was shocked at, at how great the, the sound was. I just, after that, all my money went to high-end audio equipment, whatever I could find. You know, so and I finally ended up with what I mean. I have now. I have the uh, I, I have a pair of Westminster uh, Tannoys at home, which are their big top of the line because I endorsed them years yeah. ago. And uh, so I have a, a a pretty big setup at home, and yeah. I have a big collection of LPs as well as CDs. And uh, so uh, you know, no, no, I'm. Uh, I'm definitely still interested in it, and, and but I, I I have a great I have great systems here at the studio. We have five studios here, so uh, and it's all really uh, everything's all put together by us. We build our own crossovers. We build uh, we do all this stuff to to get the best uh, sound, and we don't want anything that's coloring the sound a lot. We want to hear have something neutral. So that when we manipulate it, we can really hear what we're doing. And it's something that will transfer and sound similar to that no matter where it goes. That's awesome. So I I think to to close off our chat here, the question I have is a little bit more personal. And it's Mm -hmm. if we caught you on the average day, what kind of music or what particular song or what artist would you be playing to, to listen to for pure enjoyment, not for not for work, but for pure enjoyment. What would be on your record player? Oh, well, that would be bebop jazz. 
Yeah, yeah. It would be, and, and like like something something maybe uplifting though in bebop jazz. and and it would be uh, something like Stanley Turrentine. Okay. Uh, something or with his wife, uh, or if, um, she plays uh, organ even. You know, B three. But uh, something that's really uh, it's the fifties jazz, uh, bebop jazz, and early sixties. The players actually were playing more to the rhythm, so there's a feel thing that they're working. Uh, with more so it's more connected in a certain way and so it's really a great experience to make your day to get you up and get you going and making you feel good and plus it's it's stimulating you uh, intellectually because any good bebop jazz takes you on that one of those emotional journeys yeah. and it takes you on a journey that abstracts the beginning the tone you know the, the line of the tune and it's all about improvising jazz. And so when it goes into the solo, a great player actually has you feeling that you know that tune is still in the background because it's, it's playing to the, the chords, but they're taking you on a cohesive journey that's giving you an abstracted view of that tune. And you're getting to get more insight into that tune because of this solo that's taking you on this nice journey, emotional journey that's connected to that tune, but isn't playing the exact notes and in the same sequence, but it's it's showing you an expanded view and all kinds of different points of view of that same tune, if you're doing it properly. I, I, I'm gonna have to start looking into some of this. Uh, I, I'm gonna take your recommendations. I wrote down some some names here and I'll, uh, I'll go check some out. Well, I, I don't think you'll be disappointed, but you you know, anything like that, like classical music or, or bebop jazz or some, some of the really advanced jazz things, uh, you don't, a lot of people are afraid of it, but you've got to spend time with it. You've got to spend time and, and finally it'll, it'll get through to you and you'll realize what they're doing. Because uh, you got to know the tune too. You yeah. have to play this tune and you have to know the tune, then you have to know what they did to it and how they made it even a bigger experience and how they, they actually manipulated in such a way that it really shows you a whole insight into that tune. And same way with classical music. You've got to, you've got to pay attention and you've got to get involved in it. And I'll give you one pointer on, the, on a, the mo one of the most important pieces of classical music of the 20th century. And all musicologists feel this way about it. It's either Stravinsky's Rite of Spring or Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra. Now, okay. if you, my choice is Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra. Talk about a journey. Unbelievable. And you have to get Fritz Reiner and the Chicago Symphony on okay. RCA. It's an old recording. He does it the best. He takes you on a ride you will not forget. If you finally get deep into it and follow it and let it take you, you're going to have an experience you never thought you'd have. Oh, that's awesome. That's how great music can be. Well, so now I have my homework. Hopefully this means that uh, in a few months I can uh, reconvene and we can chat and I can tell you all about the experience. Yeah, do it. Do it. No, I, I, I'm telling you, you won't, you won't regret it. Bernie, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, wishing you all the best and take care, everyone. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs>